where he, where Bastion. Oh my god. <laughs> Carry on. We'll Is your just, dog okay? We'll just edit that out. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am your co-host, Martha Sullivan, library manager and wannabe Disney princess. And I am here as always with my co-host. I am Pete Romberg, curriculum developer and uh, actual Disney princess. No, I'm not actually a Disney princess. <laughs> no, no, nor am it's I like, a wannabe. Right. Nor am I a wannabe Disney princess. So, <laughs> uh, I just realized that I was the one who's supposed to be segueing <laughs> us. Uh, and we are here tonight to talk about self-aware stories and omnipresent narr- narrators. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, we're going to take a little bit of time to tell you what is stuck in our heads this week. Uh, these are the pieces of media or pop culture that we have not been able to think about. And I'm going to let Pete go first, because once I get started on mine, it is going to be nigh impossible to get me to shut up about it. <laughs> uh, would you say that that you'll have to just let it go at some point to to stop talking about it? Uh, anyway, no, because I'm not talking about Frozen, Pete. Jeez. <laughs> um, so what's stuck in my head this week is The Expanse. Uh, the sci-fi show originally aired on the Sci-Fi Channel, then moved over to Amazon, uh, for seasons four through six. Um, the sixth season has aired by this point, but I am apparently quite a bit behind. Um, I had only finished through the fourth season. And I started watching the fifth season again and immediately remembered why I loved The Expanse and sort of, on the one hand, kicked myself for not having watched the fifth and sixth season uh, and also got really excited that I had two whole seasons to be able to watch. Um, The Expanse is hard sci-fi. You have conflict between Earth, Mars, and the Belters, who are folks out in the asteroid belt. Um, The first season is a sort of murder mystery we've got a a noir-esque detective uh we've got a a un um bigwig and we've got a uh the captain of a a ship uh and their you know lives and and desires and missions and whatnot all are intersecting as we discover that some sort of alien proto-molecule from beyond the solar system uh is being researched studied developed and used for nefarious purposes by people um it's a really fun show great uh great props great just like production design writ large a fully realized world uh based on a series of sci-fi novels which i haven't read yet but the final book i think has been published now so uh maybe i maybe i should get real hard into this these uh books uh yeah i've heard i've heard good things about the expanse um one of the kind of weird things about me, and I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before, sci-fi TV, like hard sci-fi TV does not really do it with for me. Hmm. Like I am a sci-fi nerd girl, but there is very there are very few like sci-fi TV shows, like outer space interdimensional kind of sci-fi shows. When, um, and, that have connected with me. Is it is it the hard sci-fi or the we're out in space writ large? Like so, so Star Trek is pretty soft sci-fi, but then you've got like, you know, you've you've got like you know Nebulon crystals on on the Star Trek side, which is like space fantasy, and then you've got like we've got to do a controlled burn for three point five seconds, kind of hard sci-fi. Like, do they both just not work? Yeah, I it really. They ba- I bounce off of them. Mm-hmm. Like I, I couldn't get into Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. I that's hard sci-fi. Get into couldn't get into like Stargate. Um, and I I am fully willing to admit that this is a me problem. Like this is not like I, I could not give you a solid. This is why I didn't like this thing. Mm-hmm. I just have never. It's just never resonated with me. Yeah. So I'm like, I hear good things about The Expanse and I'm very happy for everybody who enjoys it. Um, probably won't be watching it. Fair enough. It could be a lot of hard sci-fi also sort of 
tends into like military sci-fi and maybe that could also be sort of what's causing you to bounce off it well and here's the thing when it's a book mm. i eat that up like catnip mm, mm. there is like i devour warhammer 40k stuff mm. when it's in literature i love a tale of military heroism set in space but the the tv versions of those leave me cold and again i truly cannot tell you what it is about them interesting like i don't know i just they bounce off me it's it's a personal failing i'm (laughs) i'm i'm a little bit that way with fantasy tv like noted exceptions aside it could just be the fancy tv tends to have like tends to not be good (laughs) or or at least i i should say there's a much higher ratio of bad to good in fantasy tv than there is in like other genre tv maybe um and while i i eat up fantasy books it's a much higher bar for me to get into a fantasy tv show fair enough Uh, but of course like game of thrones whatever i was super into game of thrones until you know (laughs) everyone was until they weren't right right exactly (laughs) Uh, so my stuck in my head this week, um, if I had watched this movie before our top 10 episode, something on my list would have gotten bumped for it. Mm. Um, I finally watched Disney's Encanto. I'm obsessed with this movie. <laughs> I have seen it fully all the way through twice. And I have seen bits of it repeatedly over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you doing your part to bump uh, We Don't Talk About Bruno up on the charts? No, I'm Mm. not. Um, That is not my song of choice. Mm. Um, It is a very good song. It is particularly a very interesting song because of the role that it plays in the movie. Mm -hmm. Like, that is the movie's villain song um, about a character who is deeply not the villain. Right. Um, which is just sort of an interesting dynamic for me. Um, no, I have been getting a lot more mileage out of the two songs sung by the sisters of the main character. Um, one of them is about how much pressure the very, very strong sister feels to, you know, support her family and do Mm -hmm. everything that is asked of her Mm -hmm. and which I, resonated with me so deeply i had to lay down for a while after i listened to it the first time (laughs) uh and then the song that her older sister sings later about how exhausting she is exhausting it's been for her to try to be perfect and she just wants to like be like imagine what she could accomplish if he if she didn't have to worry about being perfect all the time sure um it's a brilliant movie it's beautiful the characters are incredible. The music is, the music is great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and it is just truly a fascinating illustration of the direction that Disney movies are going in now. Um, it, like I said before, it has a villain song, but there really is no villain in this movie. And I'm not going to get too into the story. Um, but essentially what happens is you have Maribel Madrigal, who is voiced by Stephanie Beatriz from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Nine-Nine. And her family, everyone in her family has a magical gift of some kind um, that they are given when they are five years old by a magical candle that her grandmother found that was given or appeared to her grandmother in a moment of great need. One of the things I appreciate about this movie is that it is utterly uninterested in explaining to you how any or where any of the magic worked. Sure. It's just like, not the point. Magical Don't worry realism. about it. Right. Yeah. There's a magic um, candle. So ev- Move along. Yeah. So everyone in her family has a gift. Um, and then at some point, the magic of the family starts to get shaky. And so Maribel sets out to save the miracle of her family because the village that they live in have has come to rely on the gifts of the family um to kind of like protect them and help them and like they've they've become sort of the the protectors of this little village in the valley and mirabelle doesn't have a gift right i didn't know if that was a spoiler i think that's in the trailer (laughs) to say okay i've only seen bits and pieces of the movie but i saw the trailer and 
I think that's in the trailer. Okay, yeah, she, everyone in the family is supposed to get a gift when they're five. She doesn't get one. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it's also about how she relates to her family um, when they all have these amazing gifts and she doesn't. And what does that mean? So, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, I would watch it again right now. If, if we weren't recording this podcast. I mean, listen closely for the background. If I hear any singing happening, I'll, <laughs> you're busted. We don't talk about Bruce. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's great. It also features many loving and committed parental relationships. Hmm. Not No dead moms. Hmm. No dead moms in this movie. That's nice. That, that's, that's a departure for yes. Disney. <laughs> Uh, So we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about stories that know that they're stories. we are back so the topic that we bring to the table today is narratives that are aware or uh, that narratives that are aware that they are narratives so we're talking about characters that have been alerted in some way to the fact that they are in a story and we have three pieces of media to bring before you uh, that illustrate this principle. Said Martha. Uh, and I am going. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we are going to start by going back to the 1970s uh, with a children's book originally written in German and translated into English called The Neverending Story by Michael Ende. The Neverending Story is about a boy named Bastion who is an unfortunate boy who is um his mother dies and he's neglected by his dad and he's kind of an outsider and is bullied a lot and at the beginning of the story he is running away from bullies and he hides in a used bookstore Uh, where he finds a book called The Neverending Story, which he starts to read. The Neverending Story is about, is a fantasy novel inside of this fantasy novel about (laughs) a magical world called Fantastica. Uh, It was changed to Fantasia in the movie because Mm -hmm. I think it was a, I think it was. Maybe I'm just thinking of the Disney Fantasia. Um, But it is ruled by the childlike empress, uh, and it is being eaten up by an entity called the Nothing. Um, A delegation from across the the land meets uh, in order to send out um, a group of chosen warriors uh, to find a cure for the childlike empress and figure out how to save uh, Fantastica from the Nothing. Uh, This group includes a young boy warrior named Atreyu um, and his luck dragon named Falcor. um, (laughs) Who is the best. Who is the best, yes. Um, So as Bastion is reading this story, the further into it he gets, the more aware he becomes of the fact that the characters in the story seem to be aware of the fact that not only are they characters in a story, but that they are being read about by specifically Bastion. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book that Bastion is reading culminates in a confrontation sort of that happens on the page where Bastion realizes that he is being called upon to give the childlike empress a name and save Fantastica from the nothing. He does so. And at that point becomes sucked into the world of Fantastica. And then the second half of the book 
is about Bastion um, adventuring through Fantastica. Uh, he loses his memories. He gets them back. He you know goes on goes on this journey of self discovery. Um, and and creation uh fanta- like yes when, once he once he enters fantastica his wishes become reality and i got a real sort of um almost like narnia vibe uh, out of it I, I got a lot of narnia vibes throughout this book i think it's just that flavor of fantasy um well but- and the the idea is that the in the first half the nothing is consuming fantastica and then bastion is the one it it turns out that Fantastica needs somebody from like the real world mm-hmm. because Bastion is going to be the one who has the imagination to recreate the world of Fantastica. Right. So, as as creatures in stories, the Fantasticans cannot like they 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 are not imaginative. Like they cannot imagine. Yes. Um. Yeah, whereas so, Bastion can. Right. Um. This this was adapted into a movie. Um, this was adapted into two movies. Uh, the first movie is basically the first half of this book, and it ends with Bastion calling out um, the childlike empress's new name and meeting her and being told that he now gets to um, create the new Fantastica. Uh, and that movie ends with Bastion riding Falcor in a victory, <laughs> in a triumphant victory pose. Which, if you've never seen The NeverEnding Story, like myself, you know that scene. <laughs> And then the second movie is the second half of the book, um, which I believe recasts uh, Bastion. Oh. Um, well, I mean, it yeah. was also like released it... six years later. Also, so... Bastion, as he appears in Fantastica, is not how he appears in the real world. So kind of makes sense. Correct. Um, Correct. I, uh, two things. One, at... my, my mental image of Bastion was of the, uh, the friend in Jojo Rabbit uh not a not a terrible image yeah uh and two this is where i have to drop the simpsons quote of uh mr simpson this is the most blatant case of fraudulent advertising since my suit against the film the never-ending story (laughs) (laughs) uh said by lionel hunt the smarmy attorney all right carry on (laughs) um but yeah so i thought this was a good place to start because this is the one that I think has the most distance between our POV character and the narrative in which he kind of ultimately discovers that he himself is a part of um, because the book itself has already been written. Like we never really find out how the book evolves to like be calling upon specific people. Um, in, in fact, there's a, there's a really cool thing right before Bastion, um, you know, says says Moonchild's name and and enters the book where we get an eternal recurrence situation where Moonchild and a another being sit down to read the book, the never ending story, and it uh and it ends with them sitting down to read the book, the never ending story, and it becomes like a an unbreakable cycle until Bastion breaks the cycle by changing it. By by finally like mm-hmm. interacting with the story. I, I just thought that was a really cool like idea. Yeah, I think that the the magic in this book is really inventive. Like it is always clear that whatever the device is here, it is explicitly magical. Yes. Um I Yeah, I don't know. I self-aware is kind of the umbrella term that I used to describe what we would be talking about tonight. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily call this book a self-aware book. Um, it is. Hmm. It, in a way, hmm. (laughs) like, I I almost feel like when you use the phrase self-aware to refer to a piece of media, that implies a certain level of cynicism, and I don't think the story is cynical at all. I think it's very earnest. Well, and and the story, like the other thing that self-aware in my mind conjures is winking at the audience, and this never really winks at the audience. It's more it's winking at Bastion, right? But yes. like, but like we the reader don't get 
there might be one moment where it calls out the idea that like Bastion himself is in a book. Um, but that like it, that is not the main thrust of, of what this book is doing. No, I think what this book is really doing is it is aware of the fact that many people who read fantasy, um, like fantasy ends up being a mirror for readers to imagine themselves in these worlds. Mm -hmm. And then this book becomes that literally Mm -hmm. like Bastion is specifically called out as a character who really enjoys fantasy. Um, He is, he's a little geeky boy. And then in this book that he's reading, not only does he get to think of himself as being part of the story, but he is explicitly then made to be part of it. So it has a very explicit, like wish fulfillment, wish fulfillment <laughs> and then it goes on to fulfill Literally. actual wishes right. yes well and, and the other side of it is like bastion is a character who in his own self-identification is really only good at like coming up with stories and coming up with like fantastical names and ideas and elements and so that is what is required of him in in this Mm -hmm. story right so like he is able to use the thing he's good at finally uh because he's not good at climbing the rope at gym or you know math class or history or whatever um right so but yeah this sorry well i was gonna say like it's it's very much that like that childhood wish fulfillment idea of like fantasy is escape i i like it i'm good at it but i never get to use that irl oh look now i get to use it irl Right. This book says that your imagination is a valuable skill. Yeah. Like that, that you have value outside of being physically strong or popular or any of that. Like this, this book says your brain is valuable. This, this book was designed for and probably made many a writers out of children. Oh, for (laughs) sure. Yeah, uh, uh, I I never read it. I've never seen the movie. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I'm I very, would say I'm very glad you assigned it. The first movie, I really like both of the movies, but I would say in particular the first movie is a very good adaptation mm. of what we see in the first half of this book. Okay. Um. Yeah, it definitely has some parts that like stick with you. Sure. Um. <laughs> I I was talking with my brother about this and. I don't know if he's seen it, but he's definitely seen the clip of the horse sinking into the swamp. Uh, yes. And, and so uh, we were the swamp about, of sadness. Yes. Yeah, swamp of despair. <laughs> yeah. So we were talking about that for quite some time. I'm just like, that's a terrifying image for a children's movie. Uh, do you want to intro our next, our next yeah, story? Yeah. Uh, so the next thing that we uh, consume, the next piece of homework, is the 1994 supernatural horror film In the Mouth of Madness by John Carpenter, starring Sam Neill, Julie Carmen, Jürgen Prochnow, David Warner, and Charlton Heston. I guess that's a but Charlton Heston situation. Um <laughs> Uh, In the Mouth of Madness is the last of Carpenter's so-called Apocalypse Trilogy, which includes The Thing and Prince of Darkness. Uh, None of them are actually related to each other. They're all just more end-of-the-world possible movies. Um, It's kind of a Lovecraftian meets um, Stephen King pastiche. The premise is that uh, Sam Neill is a... uh, Well, it begins with Sam Neill in an insane asylum. Uh, And then he begins, as we get some idea that the world outside is sort of going wrong. Um, But then he tells a story. So it's a frame story. Love a good frame story. Um, Turns out that he's an insurance investigator who is hired to search for a missing writer um, named Sutter Kane, who is definitely Stephen King. Um, I was going to say, calling this movie a pastiche of Lovecraft and King, I think diminishes Undermines. the fact that it is very explicitly <laughs> yes. a rip on love like the the title of this movie is a riff on right lovecraft the, right uh there's lovecraft story at the mountains of madness this is in the yes. mouth of madness real similar there um and yeah sutter kane is 100 stephen king <laughs> right uh just played by jürgen prock now um so uh he goes on a long adventure to find him and in the process discovers that uh sutter kane's new book is causing people to go crazy and we learn Sutter Kane whatever he writes is coming true and he is using that to uh 
end the world, basically. <laughs> um, this causes uh, Sam Neill to eventually go crazy. Uh, and eventually he leaves the insane asylum as the uh, the world has entirely fallen apart as everyone has watched the movie or read the book in the mouth of madness. Uh, and the movie ends amazingly with Sam Neill watching the film in the mouth of madness in a movie theater eating some popcorn. Uh, and it's exactly the movie that we were watching. Um, so I, I yeah. The only correction that I would make to what you just said is I think we are supposed to believe that it has always been true for Sutter that what he writes becomes real. I don't hmm. think this is a new thing. Hmm. Okay. I could, I could see that. I wasn't sure which way we were supposed to think on it because he had written so many previous like successful horror movies or books mm -hmm. um, w without the world ending. Uh, sure. That, that I, I wasn't sure if this was a, a new thing or if this was a like, it's always been this way, but this was his, his final act, you know? Yeah. That at least, that was my understanding. Sure. That's fair. Um, yeah, I, I saw this movie for the first time just a couple months ago and loved it and found out that you also love this movie. Uh, I love this movie so much. <laughs> um, I love it when Sam Neill gets to be weird. Yes. <laughs> I have I have spoken at length on this podcast about my very, very deep love for Mr. Sam Neill. I, I was going to say, um, I love it when Sam Neill gets to be weird. I love it when he gets to be in movies in general. Well, when is he? Actually, I said that. And like, when is he not right. kind of weird? Right. Even in Jurassic Park, he's a little like he's bringing a good energy to it. But yeah, so the, the big question of of In the Mouth of Madness becomes, are any of Sam Neill's actions, like, has he ever had agency or has he always been dancing to the tune of Sutter Kane? Like, how much of the world exists because Sutter Kane has written it? Right. Like, this movie just goes hog wild on the what is real, what do you think is real if you think it is, it probably isn't. Well, and the first um, the first half of this movie is like it's not so much about his agency; it's about like, is he going crazy? Like, what is up with yes. these things he's seeing and experiencing? There's lots of good gaslighting happening where you know he goes to find Sutter Kane, and when he comes back, they're like, "What are you talking about? He turned in that book manuscript months ago." Uh, yes. Now it's, now it's a movie. To the publisher. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. Um, he tries uh, to get rid of the manuscript, and it shows like. He tries to get rid of the manuscript, and then that's when he finds out that, like, oh, no, we got it months ago. Yeah, yeah. There's a great, great moment because it's so it's so low budget simple, but it's so effective where, like, he's on the on, on a bus leaving and Sutter Kane is in his dream being like, listen, I'm literally writing reality. I can change anything. Look, everything is now blue. And then it cuts and everything is like it's a blue, you know, it's a blue tint on the lens. Uh, and then it cuts back to normal. And it's like, that is so cool and also so basic like john carpenter knows how to spend a buck to make it and like to make it work so the big difference i think between how this movie and i know that we still have one more piece of media to to talk about but just as the neverending story uses our expectations of a fantasy hero and kind of plays on what bastion's expectations are for like a fantasy story and being a fantasy hero mm -hmm. in the mouth of madness is entirely predicated on horror concepts and ideas. Like it is not just based off of some of the most well-known horror authors in the world. Um, but it also like kind of tell it, it, it manages to both be, I think completely surprising and also utterly predictable yeah like when you when you kind of take a step back and you look at it you're like well of course he never knows what's real that's like a keystone idea of horror like that is that is something that i would expect this story to to utilize right. um but also just as it unfolds it is so shocking <laughs> to watch that I think it, I think the way that it straddles that line is very, very successful. Yes, one one hundred percent. It also uses not not just like it uses the storytelling tropes, not not just like the plot beats, but like the 
the big idea tropes, um, or even just the structural tropes, uh, of a lot of, like, the horror masters, um, the whole idea of, of it being a frame story where he's gone crazy because of knowledge is, like, just pure Lovecraft, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so even... And- yeah. Did we mention, have we mentioned how the whole thing takes place in a tiny, possibly fictional East Coast town? Right. Like, it's it's like Vermont or New Hampshire or something, so it's not technically Maine. Yes. But it's basically Maine. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that the way that this movie demonstrates an awareness of and a respect for these kind of horror tropes is very, very smart. And also right. like, well, and, and John Carpenter, was, I was John say, Carpenter made this movie. Right. It's directed by John Carpenter. Like the guy who, whose name is like indelibly linked to horror movies. Um, mm-hmm. And this is pretty late in his career. Uh, he only makes a handful of films after this. Uh, none of which are as good. Um, but it's, so it's, it's yeah. Sort of like everything is linked in a way. Also, the scene where the woman gets out of the car, spider, like, on her hands and feet, like a spider with her head turned all the way around. Yeah. Like, that is an image that lives rent-free in my brain, as the children say. (laughs) I I loved the, um, when they first arrive in the small East Coast, uh, it looks like it's New Hampshire town, uh, called Hobbs End. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a great use of like it's a small town and everyone's acting a little bit weird but are we acting weird because you're just outsiders you know like and and we're a normal small town or are we acting weird because bad things and the answer is bad things <laughs> but uh but it's it's that good sort of like i don't know maybe it's just a weird small town kind of uh trope mhm and then you find out that, like, no, it's not just a weird right. small town. The... <laughs> they are also actively burning people in their basements or whatever. <laughs> right. The The evil-looking church on top of the hill is, in fact, a site of evil. Is, in fact, an evil-looking church, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> God, I love this movie. Um, I think it's my, f- I mean, I think it's my favorite Carpenter movie. But you, um, like you don't like the thing, which which is a no. No, I do like you do like I the do thing? like the thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's fine. I don't love the thing. Okay, okay. Yeah, I yeah, like it. It's, I also it's way didn't up there. think. I also did not think that the new one that they made was that bad. Oh, oh, the new that, the new thing. Yeah, it was like 2011 yeah. or something. Yeah, I thought it was fun. That was fun. Um, but yeah. I I love this movie. Um I think that the the way that it celebrates and kind of affectionately pokes fun at King and Lovecraft is very very enjoyable. Um I'm always here for Sam Neill as like a gibbering insane person <laughs> or or even like a straight lace person, you know, like like he is at the beginning. Like he yeah. he's he's got range. Um it, there's a line in this movie early on uh, where someone says, you can get, forget about Stephen King. Sutter Kane outsells them all, which is like, yes, I love it. I love that we're referencing it. It was not until you said those names in quick succession that I realized that Sutter Kane's initials are the or, same as Stephen uh, King's. It's a C, not a K. Is it? In, in okay. K, yeah, yeah. Never mind. But it, I mean, sounds similar, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing, and I, I kind of mentioned this before, this movie cost $8 million. Like horror is a is a genre that can often be made on the cheap, but man, this movie looks great, and for eight million dollars, this is an absolute masterpiece. You know, like the the effects are gnarly and and creepy. Uh, yeah, I, I don't really know where I'm going with that, other than horror is, is generally a genre where you can spend a lot of money or you can make it on the cheap and in the right hands. You know, a a cheap. Or an inexpensive horror movie still absolutely looks great. Horror is a genre that it is really easy to make cheap horror. Yeah. So people make a lot of horror. That's fair. And some of which it's means, <laughs> yeah. So this is this is where I get I do get into fights with people about this because it's not that there is, it's not that proportionally horror is more likely to be bad. It's just that there is a lot of horror. Yeah. So the ratio 
I think, of good to bad stuff is the same. You're just talking about a larger volume to start with. Right, right. So the, the denominator all of the is numbers, larger. All of the numbers are bigger. Yes, except for the budget. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but it does mean that you can make very, very effective horror for not very much money yeah. if you know what you're doing. Yeah. And And this, I think, is a great example of that because it's... Like some of the things like I was saying earlier with the the blue, it's like that's a simple trick. That's not too bad. And then you can spend a bunch of money on like your your horrifying wall of monsters dripping in like, you know, lube or whatever uh, inside <laughs> inside the horror black church. <laughs> you got to get it glistening. Upsetting. You got to get it really glistening. <laughs> oh, I don't like any of the words that you're saying. Uh, I'm looking on wiki right now. Hayden Christensen is in this movie. What? As a paper boy. Okay. Yeah, there we go. All right, what is our final movie? Unless there's anything else you want to talk about with this. Not yet. Cool. Our final movie is a 2006 film uh, written by Zach Helm and directed by Mark Forster called Stranger Than Fiction. This movie stars Wolf Ferrell as Harold Crick, Emma Thompson, Thompson as author Karen Eiffel, Dustin Hoffman as Professor Jules Hilbert, Queen Latifah as Penny Escher, uh, and a bunch of other people, Maggie Gyllenhaal as uh, Anna, um, Tony Hale shows up yeah, at one point. It. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is the story of uh, Harold Crick, who is a pretty mundane irs auditor <laughs> he's he's not mundane he's a very boring um, irs auditor yeah he is he is totally boringly normal in every way um until one day he realizes that he can hear narration coming from somewhere uh that is narrating his life um from what is happening outside of him to what he is thinking about in his head uh, and eventually in the movie, we discover that the narrator is Emma Thompson, Karen Eiffel, who is an author writing the story of Harold Crick. Uh, she does not know that she's writing the story of a real man um, until they meet later in the movie. Spoiler alert. Mm -hmm. um, but being confronted with the realities of the mon the mundanity, mon mundane mundanity pronounce that word for me yeah yeah i don't know <laughs> uh of his life um harold ultimately starts to make more adventurous choices uh he pursues maggie gyllenhaal who is the very attractive owner of a bakery um he goes to see dustin hoffman who is playing the english professor version of my best friend's dad <laughs> at the university <laughs> at UIC. Right. It is important to note that this movie is set and shot in Chicago and the city looks great and they're using really clever and unusual locations. Also, I'm not joking. Oh, wait. Uh, Dustin Hoffman's character is based on my friend Rachel Hilbert's dad. Really? Like, actually, yes. not, not just that Rachel's dad is a english professor but like specifically he's a he's a philosophy professor in real life okay um but and jules hilbert is a an english professor who ends up waxing Philosophical. philosophically yeah um but yeah i'm not i'm not wow. making that up wow that's amazing <laughs> he i loved him in this movie so yes <laughs> um it was a little hard um because dustin hoffman like many men in hollywood uh, has had some less than flattering stories come out about him. Oh, um, I did not know that. Yeah, uh. it's it's not great. Um, yep, anytime yeah. you go to the wiki and there's a <laughs> sexual misconduct allegations tab. Uh-huh. Uh, so much like The NeverEnding Story and In the Map of Madness, Stranger Than Fiction uses this idea of um, a character being aware of their narrator uh, in a very genre-specific way, um, in, in this case, we are looking at romantic comedies. Um, Pete, this was the first time you had seen this movie, correct? No, I saw this in theaters when it came out, uh, oh, but I, okay. I haven't seen it since. Okay. Um, 
I like this movie more than you do. Yeah, I, I, I like this movie just fine, but I did think that the idea is better than the execution, uh, by which I mean I had such strong memories of, of what this movie was doing and the idea of, like, a dude who hears his life being narrated all of a sudden um, and then sort of goes down the rabbit hole to try to find the narrator. Uh, the whole bit about, like, you know, um, little did he know being a whole bit and it's like, are you in a comedy or are you in a tragedy? Uh, it's all very funny and good, but then Maggie Gyllenhaal is just, I think far too much of a, a like a 2006 kind of rom-com character, uh, kind of grating on me. She's supposed to be like a wild free spirit type to contrast, uh, Harold Crick's, you know, mundane numbers accountant guy. Uh, but it just came off as like irritating and grating, um, and for for various parts of the movie, I was just like, I know what this is trying to do. It's just something about it isn't quite gelling in the way I want it to. And I don't have an easy fix for why it isn't. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, I'd probably give it three and a half stars out of five. And for me, I think what what sells me on it a little bit stronger than you is that I think the characters are all so utterly charming like i really like maggie gyllenhaal in this movie Mm. um she has a really great little monologue where she talks about um when she dropped out of school Mm -hmm. uh she talks about how she started like she had a study group um and she started baking for her study group and discovered that she was really good at it and she liked doing it and that eventually she had a study group of like 40 people (laughs) and a solid d average so she ends up dropping out of school of, to of Harvard law. Yeah. Dropping yeah. out of Harvard law to um, pursue owning a bakery. And then later in the movie, Will Ferrell's character brings her flowers. flowers. Yes. that I, I strongly <laughs> remember that. And I thought that was such a clever and sweet gag. Like I thought it was so cute. What they're, they're bags of different kinds of baking flour. Right. Because so she's instead a of bringing her a bouquet of flowers, he brings her an array of baking flowers. And I just, that's one of those things where I'm like, that is so cute and demonstrates, it demonstrates two, th- it tells you two things. It tells you something about Harold mm-hmm. in just the way that he thinks. And it tells you something about Anna because that is something she values. Like she values that more than she would have valued the bouquet of flowers. And the fact that he knows that I, that, that moment I thought was just such a lovely, sincere moment of romance. Pulling back uh, out of the story and into the meta narrative um, that like, this is a very well-written movie. I love Emma Thompson's narration because it is, it has an excellent way with words. Anytime Dustin Hoffman is talking, I love I love the way this movie interacts with the written word, like with language, which is good because it's about a writer. Um, but that moment of like, I brought you flowers is such a clever and funny, like, pun. You know, like it, it fits so well with the sensibility of the film, which is a very sort of literary sensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really enjoyed that. So one of the kind of debates that pops up in the movie is how should Karen Eiffel end her book? Because she had a very specific ending in mind. And then once she once she discovers that she is writing somehow, she is writing the life of an actual person. Um, The question of how to end her book yeah, she is a writer thing. who always kills her main character at the end. And once she she meets Harold, she can't kill him. <laughs> uh, but of course, she meets him after she's already figured out how she's going to kill him. I I love that. And first off, we're spoiling all of this, but also it was your homework. So who cares? Also, the movie. And it's a 16 year old movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love that at the end, Will Ferrell like reads reads the the novel. D- Dustin Hoffman and Will Ferrell both read read the manuscript, and they both are like, "Yep, that was perfect. I need to die." Uh, or you know, there's no way we can fix this. You need to die. Uh, and one thing that I really appreciate about it is 
we don't ever find out what the ending was that she had originally planned, which I think is... Yes, we do. Do we? He's supposed to die when he gets hit by the bus. Oh, when he gets hit by the bus. Hmm. Yeah, like he's supposed to die. He's supposed to die saving a little kid. Right. From getting hit by a bus because that's supposed to show that he has like... Grown. Stepped... Yeah, that he has stepped fully out of his... um, I keep wanting to say mundanity, but I don't know that I'm pronouncing that word correctly. It might be mundanity, but I don't know if I'm pronouncing that word either. Yeah, just he he is supposed to show that he has gotten to a point where he acts without thinking and he acts in a heroic way. And Mm -hmm. what what actually ends up happening is that his watch, the bus hits him in such a way that it hits his watch, which has been sort of a theme of the movie. Um, breaks the watch and sends him to the hospital. So he still gets to save the kid. Um, a character Karen, still dies, but the character is the watch. Right. And I, we get a scene with Karen's publisher where she's like, this ending wasn't effective. And Karen's like, yeah, I know, but <laughs> no, it was with Dustin Hoffman. Oh, Dustin. Hoffman. Yeah, who, yeah, who, had read, who had read the previous version and then was like, not as good. <laughs> Um, and she's just like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but I couldn't kill him. So this is what Mm -hmm. we got. Um, yeah. Are are there any of these questions we want to get into? Have we sort of gotten through them somewhat? Yeah. I'm trying to think if I have anything more I want to say. Mm hmm. I think it's interesting that all three of these stories play with levels of awareness from the characters. Like we, as the audience know what we're getting into when we um, approach them, because I think in all three of these, well, maybe not so much in the mouth of madness. Um, Although I think Sutter Kane being an author that shapes reality was part of the advertising for that movie. Hmm. Um, So like we, as the audience are aware, I don't know. I, I think the advertising for it was, this author's books is making people go crazy. Uh, Maybe. Which is not the same as the author is changing reality. Yeah. Um, I wasn't alive when this movie first came out, so I'm not totally sure. (laughs) I somewhat recently watched the trailer, uh, and I I think that's the the angle, if I remember correctly. Um, But all three of these, like the main character, like the, the level of awareness... They all have kind of a dawning realization at some point during mm-hmm. the story that, like, something weird is happening. Um, and, and some of those are slower, like Bastion's is a very slow build. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Sam Neill's is a very slow build. Uh, Will Ferrell's is, like, two minutes into the movie and it hits him like a brick <laughs> because it's, you know, he's hearing a voice. Um hmm I don't remember where, where I was going with that one. Yeah, going with that. Well, and it, like it's just the structure of the three stories and what they're what they're trying to do with that. Um, what are we calling it? Like self awareness or like authorial insertion or whatever. I would read the book version of either Stranger Than Fiction or In the Mouth of Madness. I think both of those would make good books. I don't know if Stranger Than Fiction would. Do you not think it would make a good book or would it not just or would it just not be the kind of book that you would be interested in reading? Both are valid. I did not say that to be. Yeah, no, no, I'm I'm with you. Uh, I think there's something to. The way the film like the way the media of film lets you play with what's happening to, to Crick in various ways, like the, the narration mm-hmm. and all the rest of it that works really well in the film and might be harder to translate in the same meaningful way to a book. Um, because you'd have to have multiple layers of narration. You'd have to have um, like just third person omniscient narrator plot description. And then you'd have to have Karen Eiffel's narration. And then you'd have to have, you know, the rest of it. And I could see it, like, it might work out, and if it was done well, it could be really cool. But it could also... I could see it... Be tedious. Or I could see it just not working uh, in the same way. 
Um, I would definitely read In the Mouth of Madness as a book. That's yes. a, that seems great. <laughs> I mean, surprising no one. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, a horror it's movie like, based on two major horror authors would work as a horror book. Hmm. <laughs> like, here, Martha, have this catnip. <laughs> Um, but no, I, in general, I think the, like, self-aware, I think the narrative, I think the narrative that is aware it's a narrative could be a plot device that ends up being very tedious. Like, I think there is a world in which these stories are, like, think that they are much smarter than they actually are. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I tend to think that these, like, they're, like, I'm sure that these are not the only three stories to use this device, but they stand out to me because I think that they all are extremely effective in using that self-aware narrative in a very particular way. And one thing about them is like, and I was kind of talking about this with stranger than fiction. They're all story and they're all, they're all stories that are deeply invested in the power of, of like literature, basically like the, the written word. Um, yes. You know, bash and getting sucked into the book. Mouth of Madness, literally an author doing it. Uh, so th it's it could be tedious. These three examples are not. And they're all very they're all very aware of like the power of of like stories and of the written word story uh, in our culture. I think they are also very aware. The stories are very aware of the power of their main characters, as it were. Like, especially in Stranger Than Fiction and The NeverEnding Story, like, those kind of hinge on their characters' growth and, mm. like, they, they hinge on their, their main characters taking control of their narrative like in gaining, a way. gaining agency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And In the Mouth of Madness is all dedicated to taking that away from Sam Neill. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you, you said hinge uh, earlier, uh... The, the other two works hinge on the characters gaining narrative and or agency. And in the mouth of madness is all about Sam Neill becoming unhinged. Uh, that doesn't quite work. Uh -huh. that, that was way more clever when I was originally uh -huh. thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's like Sutter Kane is aware that he has to like, it, it becomes a story about the kind of battle of wills between Kane and Sam Neill's character. Yeah. Um, and in Stranger Than Fiction and The NeverEnding Story, like, both of those depend on their main characters developing agency and taking control of their stories. Mm -hmm. Which I think is very cool. Yeah. I'm going to watch Event Horizon tonight. I, I watched that shortly after I watched <laughs> In the Mouth of Madness, not going to lie. <laughs> It's like, I want to see Sam Neill in more horror movies, please. This is not related to anything, but have you seen Hunt for the Wilder People? I still haven't. Oh my god, Pete. I, I know, it's I know. It's so good. <laughs> it's, it's, on, it's on my, it's like perpetually <sighs> on my short list. It is. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> um. That's another like it is not the same as anything we're talking about right now, but it <laughs> right. is a per it it's, is a perfect movie. It's Sam Neill, which is why it's relevant. Being weird, <laughs> I don't think he knows how to not be weird. <laughs> it's his power, I'm, like yeah. I'm still unclear as to whether or not he knew he was making a movie when they filmed Hunt for the Wilder People, or if they just sort of showed up at his farm <laughs> and were like. Here is a small child that you've adopted now. <laughs> Good luck. And go. <laughs> um, anything else you want to say about these movies? Now that I've given you the cold <laughs> open for this episode. <laughs> uh, I think I'm good. Great. Uh, that is going to do it for us today. Um, we're going to see if I can get through this whole outro with out forgetting what I'm supposed to say. Do it. <laughs> um, do I start with our plugs or do I start with what we're what we're doing you for kind, our next episode? You kind of change it up every time, so uh, I've, I've I've got a distinct uh, order. But you always throw the curveball each time. I'm a wild card, exactly. baby. Exactly. 
Um, Thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you are interested in more content from us, you should check out our SoundCloud feed. Uh, Did you do your homework? Um, I release a second podcast on that same feed on alternating weeks called Love Ya, where Pete's wife Marin and I watch a young adult movie or a rom-com and then talk about it in great detail. You can follow us on all the social media outlets at DYDYH Podcast. Uh, and you can follow me personally on, at all the places at Magical Martha, uh, including a newsletter that you can find at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha that I update whenever I feel like it. Um, I think my last issue was still all of the holiday movies I watched in December. So, you know, not really in a hurry to, to spit out content over there, but you know, <laughs> keep an eye on it. It might develop later. I might decide to spend February watching movies about space feelings. Who knows? Space feelings. I watched Armageddon the other day, and I'm just having a lot of space emotions. I've also never seen Apollo 13, which I which feels weird to me. That is a that's a perfect (laughs) movie. That that is a perfect movie, and I'm excited for you to watch it. But see, now I'm afraid if I don't like it, I can never talk to you (sighs) about it. I know. I know. (laughs) I'll I'll just be disappointed. Uh, Pete, where can people find you being disappointed in me? <laughs> no, hopefully you can find me nowhere being disappointed. Uh, but you can find me uh, elsewhere uh, on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O 3000, where I'm tweeting about politics and pop culture. Um, yeah. Just retweeted an Onion article about... Uh, Minnesota residents thinking of finally packing it all up and moving someplace warm like Michigan. Plus, you get to see my Wordle scores until I stop posting those. I stopped posting those. Yep. I got bored of... I, I'm still doing it every day. Mm-hmm. I, I um, have a, um, a block on my uh, browsers that blocks Twitter on my computer from like 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Um, and so if I succeed at wordle anytime in those hours i end up not posting it have you not succeeded any of that oh yet? no i have just oftentimes i've succeeded in the hours of 8 a.m to 5 p.m and then i don't post it because i don't have access to twitter ah uh, fair enough but if i succeed before or after then i'll post it to twitter yeah it has become part of my morning ritual where i do the um the New York Times spelling bee and the mm. crossword mini. And now I do the Wordle. I've gotten into Vox's crossword, so I do that and Wordle. Um, we <laughs> Anyway, you can't follow us on either of those things. <laughs> That's true. Um, but follow Pete to see his Wordle scores. Uh, Pete, tell our audience what we are doing for our next episode. Shoot. What are we doing for our next episode? We are. Uh, we just talked about this. Um, next episode, we are talking. Two movies enter. Yes. One movie leaves. Oh, that's a great title. I was just going to call it Dueling <laughs> Movies, but Movie Thunderdome is going to be the title of our next episode. Um, we are talking about movies that came out very close to each other with very similar premises. Uh, Martha just referenced Armageddon. We're definitely talking Armageddon and Deep Impact. And for our other pair, we're looking at John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China and the Eddie Murphy vehicle, The Golden Child. Uh, These are both sort of fantasy, action, comedy, kung fu, east, east, west, probably problematic uh, movies from the 80s. Uh, They both came out in the same year, 1986, uh, and there was a big rush to get one out before the other. Lots of fun backs, uh, you know, behind-the-scenes drama happening with these two. Um, Yeah, so we'll be looking at, at... Big Trouble in Little China and Golden Child, and we will we'll be looking at Armageddon and Deep Impact. Uh, two films enter, one film leaves. Yeah, uh, I I think it's gonna be great. I have never seen Deep Impact, and I have not seen Armageddon in like since it came out on DVD or whatever. It still slaps. <laughs> I've I've look, I think I think a lot of people have been like re-watching Armageddon and talking about it because it's been on my mind is a thing to maybe rewatch. Uh, so yeah, catch us when we are back in two weeks. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. And until we see you again, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed.
Uh, I'm glad you remember the class dismissed part because as you paused, I was like, and you're going to end with just remember that we love you. Just remember <laughs> um, that we love you. Which is the wrong show. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> All right.